You're listening to Zeigler Group's Legal Zeitgeist podcast, the funds law podcast series that helps asset management firms reevaluate and revolutionize their current approach to investment funds law with the latest technology, legal and regulatory compliance insights, and best practices. Hi, I'm Aoife McGuire, Head of Fund Registration at Zeidler Group, and today I'm joined by Robert Boyle, who's the Head of the Dublin Office of Zeidler Group. On today's episode, we will be discussing the national private placement regimes. Robert, thanks for joining me today. Good morning, Aoife. Thank you very much for having me on. So, question one, what are the national private placement regimes and when might you use them? So, to answer this question, national private placement regimes Technically, they allow non-EU AFMs to market AFs, whether they're EU AFs or non-EU AFs, to professional investors in each jurisdiction where the national private placement regime applies. So that's a lot of legalese and acronyms. What does that mean in layman's language? Essentially, what it means is it allows you to market foreign funds to professional investors in certain it's a EEA jurisdictions and the UK. So to give a practical example, let's say you're a US investment advisor and you wish to market a Cayman private fund to institutional investors in a couple of European countries, then you might register the fund for marketing under the national private placement regime in each country where you want to market. National private placement regimes, it's not just for US investment advisors, obviously, it also now would now apply to UK AFMs wishing to market AFs into the EU. Equally, the UK national private placement regime would apply to EU AFMs who want to market AFs into the UK. And of course, it'll also apply to, for example, Asian asset managers who wish to market funds into EU countries. So it offers quite a range for various clients of different types of funds and different countries in Europe that they can then market their funds into. Absolutely, it does, yeah. And I guess we, we see quite a diverse client base using national private racing regimes, um, right from large US investment advisors to you know, small boutique operators out of Singapore or Australia even. And I suppose for clients coming in from various countries, they might be mostly familiar with the USITS regime here in Europe. But the difference between the USITS regime and the national private placement regimes or MPPRs is that the MPPRs differ radically from country to country. I guess there's two main areas where there's difference between the different countries. So the first is in process, Eva, and I think probably you're best qualified to talk about that, how the processes differ from country to country. Yeah, I think here in Zeidler, we like to kind of group different countries together in that there are some that are a bit more straightforward to prepare your application and uh, and the process for, and then others that are slightly more complicated or difficult. I guess probably the first, in the first group, we would have countries like the UK, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, perhaps Ireland would even be in there. The processes here are slightly easier or less burdensome. There's less documents or information required to be initially submitted to the regulators here and the regulators themselves take less time in their review of these countries. That's quite fair to say, is it? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I suppose our more difficult countries are places like Germany and Denmark, 
the kind of higher end countries. And maybe we could talk a bit about some of the expectations or requirements for those countries. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So I think that brings us nicely to the gold plating requirements. So in Denmark and Germany, both countries require that you appoint a depository light for your fund. So this would be a service provider and they will carry out the functions of safekeeping of assets and cash flow monitoring and there's a couple of other functions too that the depository light has to carry out. So if you are approaching the Danish or German markets, it's important to bear in mind the depository light requirement and to appoint the depository light in in, in good time because it's, it tends to take a bit of time to get the depository light appointed in place. Then another gold plating requirement is specific to Denmark. It is a reciprocity requirement. And that means that in order to be able to market a, a fund under the national private placement regime in Denmark, it's also necessary that you can market a Danish fund in the home jurisdiction of the AFM or AFE you wish to market in Denmark. So as you can imagine, just from the description, that can be a bit of a burdensome requirement and it can involve getting advice from local council in the jurisdiction where the fund or the AFM is a domicile that a Danish AFM or Danish fund would be able to market in that jurisdiction and under similar conditions to which Denmark allows the marketing of foreign funds in Denmark. Yeah, it's very interesting that Denmark is the only country with such a requirement in place. Um, perhaps that's a topic for another day as to how that evolved, that reciprocity requirement. But moving on then, once we have our MPPR regime applied for and our fund is registered, what sort of ongoing requirements would a, would a fund have or an AFM have once the registration is up and running? Well, fundamentally, there's four areas, Eva. So first is probably something you're going to deal with before you actually register the fund, but it's something that you have to bear in mind throughout the period the fund is marketing. And they are that you have to have a certain pre-investment disclosures in place. These are sometimes referred to as Article 23 disclosures to investors. These could be things like the fund's investment strategy, the identity of the depository light, the extent to which they use the fund uses leverage, any restrictions on leverage, things that would typically be included in a fund's offering document or private place memorandum. And what we typically do there for clients is if they approach us with a, a PPM for, a, say, a Cayman fund, we'll carry out a gap analysis on that PPM to see which disclosures under Article 23 are already present. So, for example, the investment strategy would almost, almost, almost always be present, and which are missing. And typical examples of things which might be missing would be information on jurisdiction and enforcement of judgments in the jurisdiction where the fund is, is domiciled. So that's the first major requirement, the pre-investment disclosures under Article 23.1. The second major ongoing requirement is the requirement to carry out so-called Annex 4 reporting to the regulator in each jurisdiction where you register the fund under the National Private Placement Regime. So Annex 4 reporting reports the fund's uh, exposures and concentrations of assets and levels of leverage it uses, etc., to the regulator. And depending on the size of the fund and the assets under management of the AFM, 
it may be necessary to carry out that reporting uh, annually, semi-annually or quarterly. For our larger clients, they will all have to carry out annex reporting quarterly. For US-based clients, this is sometimes compared to Form PF in the US. And we find that some of our clients will do that annex reporting in-house. They might have a regulatory reporting team, whereas others will outsource to specialist providers here in Europe who will carry out that reporting on their, their behalf. Then on the third major requirement is the annual report requirement. So AIFMD requires that you prepare an annual report. So what is an annual report? An annual report is the financial statements, which you'll prepare anyway for the fund, but with certain additional disclosures. The most significant of those additional disclosures is remuneration disclosures. You must disclose a certain information about the remuneration paid by the AFM, that's the investment manager or investment advisor, to its staff. So another significant disclosure that you must make is the requirement to disclose any material changes to the pre-investment disclosures that occurred during the financial year. So for example, let's say there were new fee arrangements or investors' consent rights, certain matters have been removed, or uh, the investment strategy of the fund had changed, you'd have to disclose that in the annual report. Then the fourth major area which we see least frequently are the provisions of AFMD around control of non-listed companies. So these are set out in Articles 26 to 30 of AFMD. And this only applies if you are acquiring control of non-listed companies based in the European Union or the UK. And essentially what Articles 26 to 30 contain are provisions regarding information that must be provided under certain circumstances to the to the companies themselves, the, the investments, if you like, as well as asset anti-asset stripping provisions. So there are the four main buckets, um, just to sum up again. So you have the pre-investment disclosures, Annex 4 reporting, the annual report, and the special provisions for AFES that acquire control of non-listed companies based in Europe. And I suppose then the, the next point we could ask is, after all this and you've continued to fulfil your ongoing obligations for your fund, but you now want to exit the private placement regime, how is that done? Is it straightforward, not straightforward? What are the conditions that we need to watch out for? I think the main one, and perhaps if you're better to answer than I am, but um, the main thing is that you can't deregister under the MPPR if you have investors from the jurisdiction in your fund. So in other words, if your fundraising has been successful and you have got an investor from the jurisdiction, you can't uh, deregister under MPPR. And occasionally this will catch clients out in that they think that once their fund is closed and they're no longer marketing, then they can deregister. But that's not the case. If you have an investor from the jurisdiction in your fund, then you must continue with the registration and continue to meet all the ongoing obligations that we just discussed for the entire life of the fund or until the investor exits the fund. So let's say with a typical close-ended private equity fund, that could be a period of eight years. So it's just important to bear that in mind at the moment you're registering. That once you're in, you're in. You can't just leave when you finish your marketing. 
Yes, it can end up being a, a bigger commitment or a longer commitment than than clients realise at the outset. Indeed, yeah, indeed. Robert, thank you very much for joining me today. My pleasure, Eva. You reached the end of another episode of the Legal Zeitgeist podcast. Connect with us at zeidler.group to subscribe. Thank you for listening. The Legal Zeitgeist podcast is provided for information purposes only and does not constitute legal advice. Professional legal advice should be obtained before taking or refraining from any action as a result of the contents of this podcast. All rights reserved.